we understand the larger idea of interoperability between blockchains. But I think for the average user, other than maybe transferring crypto around, which can be a pain, you know, with bridges, we still haven't seen like this great use case of interoperability that all of us know in our gut's going to happen, you know, whether it's gaming or just like movement of assets around and like this invisible layer, which we talk about all the time at Emblem. Like, where do you feel we are now as a space on like this grander vision? Where do you feel like we are now in that road? It's kind of interesting that you point out like us that are in the space, we might see it more clearly, but sometimes I feel like people who aren't really in it, focused on it every day, maybe think that it's closer than it actually is. You know, there's yeah. still, a, still a lot of work to be done, still very early. You know, I think at least the different projects in the industry, we have the same general idea of what interoperability should be able to do. You know, you've mentioned passing assets around, but also just kind of arbitrary data. Ultimately, I think we want to be able to call smart contracts you know, from one chain to another with minimal off-chain components. So at least the good news is we all kind of agree that once that exists, you know, it'll be a very powerful tool. And then, you know, we can really kind of see blockchain take off in the mainstream. The bad news, I guess, is that it's still pretty early in the process. Most projects now can move an asset from one chain to another. Not going to look too deeply into how they're actually doing it, but, you know, they can do it. Projects do that. And we're getting better as an industry of moving arbitrary data, even kind of triggering smart contract functions, but with a lot of, you know, a lot of components in place to help that along. It's not, you know, this one beautiful seamless system yet. Yo, happy Tuesday, everybody. This is going to be a fun conversation talking about cross-chain products. I think this actually might be our first or maybe second spaces ever where we've had a fellow interoperability protocol featured on the show, man. Adam, how was your weekend? Did you watch the Super Bowl? Were you uh, fangirling? What a great game, man. And I, I know you were bummed out your your Niners uh, blew it there. But, you know, it's hard to beat the, maybe the GOAT. You know, it's really tough. So I uh, felt bad for you, but I love seeing the Niners lose. I, I used to watch the Niners win all in the 80s and 90s. And it, it was nice to, to see them go down. Not going to lie. <laughs> well, I'm actually, I'm actually a Broncos fan, but I had to cheer for the Niners because the whole team is just Broncos players or Broncos <laughs> legacy. The worst part at the end was John Elway walking up the Super Bowl trophy for the Chiefs in the Raiders stadium. Like, you, can't, you literally can't get worse than that, what dude. What kind of craziness like, is this? <laughs> that, was the, that was a stab to the heart there. I had to go home immediately after that. I'm excited, man. We actually have our fellow friend, Tam, who's the VP of marketing, has joined us on the live stream, if you guys are watching, so he's going to be sitting here talking with us. We're all talking through my microphone. If you guys aren't familiar, we do a simultaneous live stream and audio spaces at the same time. So some people get confused. There's three people um, talking through my account. It's probably going to trip a little bit of people out here. But first and foremost, let's make a, a little bit of rounds and then we'll get off to the conversation. Chris, man, how was your weekend? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, pretty good weekend. Crazy game. Uh, obviously out here in Vegas with you, Jake. So the city was just pretty much on fire. It was a ton of madness everywhere you looked. One of the, the biggest weekends we've ever had in the city's history. So super cool. Um, excited for today. You know, we've been following Wanchain for a long time. Um, a little bit of nostalgia. And it's it's good to see them, you know, still building. They were pretty early in the uh, interoperability mindset. And so excited to see what uh, how much progress they've made. Yeah, I am as well. Juan Chen, you guys have been around for a while, but first and foremost, I'd like to introduce the homie 
Hem, man, thank you for joining us. I'm excited for this conversation. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I didn't watch the big game, but I did tune into uh, the Devils taking down the Seattle Kraken. So I was uh, <laughs> watching something else. <laughs> the biggest, yeah, the, the Super Bowl was actually the most watched uh, program in television history. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah, live, Chris and I live out here in Vegas. That's where the Super Bowl was. The city was on fire, on fire. Ubers were incredibly expensive. <laughs> Yeah, well, you had all the Tay-Tay fans uh, tuning in to boost those numbers. Yeah, yeah. The the airport, uh, the VIP airport of private jets was actually full max capacity. Donald Trump had to go park somewhere else from where <laughs> I had read. Tam, dude, give us a breakdown of what is Chain. When did it, when was it founded? And um, what is like the main objectives of Chain and its cross-chain objectives? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, Wanchain, you know, some of you might have heard of it. We're pretty early on in the interoperability uh, game, but we are nowadays, you know, really more of an R and D project. We're focused on, uh, you know, a lot of kind of building um, this type of inf infrastructure to allow different blockchains to connect to one another, communicate past data. Um, but yeah, we launched, you know, all the way back in 2017 officially. The roots probably stretch a little bit further back than that, probably late 2016. But yeah, we've been at it for a long time. We've lived through a couple bear cycles, uh, so there's not many that there's not many projects out there that can say you know that they've lived through multiple. Um, but yeah, we are actually um, the original cross-chain bridge. Um, we lost we launched our first mainnet bridge all the way back in 2018. This was just between the Wanchain L1 and the and Ethereum, and since then you know it's really just exploded. We connect almost 35 different networks now: EVM, non-EVMs, all sorts of fun stuff that I'll be happy to get into. Yeah, we do that as well. I can hear your echo of the phone in the background. Yeah, I can hear the I phone. Know. I told you the phone. I, yeah, I put it in a drawer. If you give me one you second, go, I'll put it even farther. Yeah, I'd throw it in the other room, maybe. I'll, I'll put it in the other room. room and, we'll, we'll, and we'll talk. You know, Adam, it's actually interesting, right? So Emblem Vault was founded in 2016 as well, around the same time as Chain. They obviously hit mainnet about three years maybe beforehand. I think they had an ICO back in, in 2017. Um but even just thinking about interoperability back in 2016, that's like a year, maybe maybe a year into Ethereum even being created in smart contracts. Yeah, look look how far this space has come. I mean, it's uh, it's it's really pretty visionary to be that early because, like, I mean, we're all siloed now, right? And to to have the the wherewithal to to stick through it all these years to kind of still see that vision which Tam, I'd like your opinion on it, but it still feels like, you know, I, obviously we on the space, we get it. We understand this, I, the larger idea of interoperability between blockchains. But I think for the average user, other than maybe transferring, you know, some, you know, crypto around, which can be a pain, you know, with bridges, um, we still haven't seen like this great use case of interoperability that we kind of, you know, all of us know in our gut's going to happen, you know, whether it's gaming or just like movement of assets around and like this invisible layer, which we talk about all the time at Emblem. Like, where do you feel we are now um, as a space on like this grander vision? But where do you feel like we are now in that kind of that road? Yeah, well, my, my phone is now outside, so hopefully you don't hear it anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting that you point out like us that are in the space, we might see it more clearly. But sometimes I feel like 
people who aren't you know, really in it, focused on it every day, maybe think that it's closer uh, than it actually is. You know, there's yeah. still, a, still a lot of work to be done, still very early. You know, I think at least the different projects in the industry, we have the same general idea of what interoperability should be able to do. You know, you mentioned passing assets around, should, but also just kind of arbitrary data. Ultimately, I think we want to be able to call smart contracts, you know, from one chain to another um, with minimal off-chain components. Um, so at least the good news is we all kind of agree that once that exists, you know, it'll be a very powerful tool. And then, you know, we can really kind of see blockchain take off in the mainstream. The bad news, I guess, is that it's still pretty early in the process. Um, you know, most projects now can move an asset from one chain to another. I'm not going to look too deeply into how they're actually doing it, but you know, they can do it. Projects do that. And we're getting better uh, as an industry of moving arbitrary data even kind of triggering smart contract functions, but with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of components in place to help that along. It's not, you know, this one beautiful seamless system yet. Yeah. One beautiful uh, decentralized, completely <laughs> trusted system. How yeah. do you guys look at that? I mean, that's obviously like the big one. There's the, you know, decentralized yeah. maxis, which we'd all love to be, but we recognize you bump up against reality. Um, how do you, how do you view that? as you guys, as a, as a project, how, how do you view that and, and weigh the, the pluses, minus and balancing all that sort of stuff? Sure. Yeah. You know, like the way we approach it is you need a bit of nuance. Um, but what we, we, we move away from is, is the design itself decentralized. There's a difference between how something is built and designed and, you know, you can see it, the, the rails are in place to let it scale versus, you know, some projects, We'll put in like a totally centralized component, which, you know, they'll be like, oh, we'll just replace it and build a solution, um, you know, later on and, and fix this problem. So our approach has really been more, okay, we're going to take our time. You know, we don't always build fast, but we do always try to maximize decentralization um, as much as possible. Um, you know, we, I'll give you one example, you know, our kind of cross-chain infrastructure, um, the, the blockchain nodes, I mean, that are the off-chain component, they... Um, you know, are permissionless and decentralized. So anyone can, um, you know, go and become a bridge node. Now in practice, um, at any given time, there's 25 active bridge nodes. Um, you know, if we're thinking the long-term vision, you probably want 25,000. Um, but at least the design of the system itself, you know, can scale to 25,000 so that, you know, we've proven the capability of doing it. And then as it grows, you know, you actually have that path versus like an approach, which would be, well, we, we need this, um, you know, this bridge node group. So in the meantime, we're going to use like a centralized entity. So we don't take that approach. We do, we do try to really focus on uh, decentralized design. So I have here pulled up the one chain cross bridge types. So there's three different ones. And then even more so, uh, Adam and I, Chris, we talk a lot about these various types of interoperability mechanisms, right? Like a wrap is kind of like this custody and mint, right? Like for WBTC, for this type of asset, you send Bitcoin to BitGo, they custody Bitcoin, and then they they give you a token that represents that value. There's what you get, the space that you guys are in, which is bridges, which there's three mechanisms that you guys are have implemented here. Token bridges, Xflow bridges, and NFT bridges. I'm sure there's there's even more types of bridges than that. And then Emblem Vault does this like encryptment is what we call it, where you're basically tokenizing the private keys to a wallet and trading that as a token on the other side. 
Hmm. Let's go through all three of these so that we could get a full understanding of how over the last six years, Wan Chain has, um, you know, gone through your R and D phase to figure out what is the the best method of implementation. So here for Token Bridges, it says Token Bridges uses the lock, mint, burn, unlock mechanism. Can you explain what that means in practice? Yeah, this is probably the type of bridge that most regular users are going to be familiar with. Um, this is where you have the native asset. It could be anything. It could be BTC on Bitcoin. It could be ETH on Ethereum. It could be USDT uh, on Avalanche. You know, something where there is this original asset, the quote-unquote real version. And you lock it into a smart contract on that first blockchain. You have the mechanism. We can go into the details, um, but basically the, the decentralized bridge nodes go and confirm everything. And then they mint um, a wrap version of the contract, so a mirrored version of it. So you have the original value locked on the original chain where the asset actually exists. And then once that's locked, you mint kind of like a, a ghost or a mirrored version of it that the person can then use um, you know, on whatever chain they want. Assuming there's smart contracts, there are a few a bit of nuance there, but for the most part, and especially with EVM chains, it's, it's as simple as that. And then if you want to go in the other direction, the user has that mirrored version, they burn it. Um, and then once it's confirmed that the burn has occurred, then the original asset um, on the original chain gets unlocked and returned to the user. So simple as that. That's kind of the earliest type of bridging. Yeah, there and, and it continues to grow. There's like lock and mint. I think there, there's a burn and mint that happens, which I think this is what Dgods is is doing with their partnership with, with Wormhole. And they all mm -hmm. have different types of preferences, especially once you get into this idea of value. Uh, the, one of the, the main ethos um, with, with Emblem Vault is that you never want to destroy the token because of the provenance. And that is a very, you know, especially for, for things like high-end art and collectibles and, and uh, historical value. You would never want to destroy that token. But in things, as Adam talks about a lot, like things in gaming, it doesn't really matter what the token provenance is because it's you just need it. You need these quick transactions and different types of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so as you guys first began then with with token bridges and this, the you'd say V one of a of a bridge, looks like you've implemented your own type of bridge called Xflows, where it says Xflows is a decentralized cross chain solution that enables native to native cross chain transformations for assets that exist natively on multiple chains. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I'll just take one, one second to pause. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, frame it as like V1 of a bridge and V2 of a bridge. You know, it really just depends on the, on the use case. You know, the, the original version, the lock, mint, burn and lock, it still has its places. Um, you know, sometimes you need this type of approach. You know, if you want to bring your BTC value to another chain, that's kind of all, that's the only way you're going to do it. Um, now the X flows. So for, uh, people, um, like you guys who, who really know this, this basically uses liquidity pools. Um, the, the major difference is how those liquidity pools are, are funded. So, uh, you know, historically there's a few ways, you know, one, a project can incentivize users, you know, whether it's like a reward token or something like that, just go stake your USDT on these different chains. And then, uh, we'll pay you a bit of money for that. And then. Once you have these pools, you can just, you know, lock USDT in one pool, unlock the USDT in another pool on a different chain. There you go. Um, you know, another way would be centralized provision liquidity, which is also, you know, something that, that, that can be done. Um, for us, 
the liquidity provision mechanism is slightly different. Um, it actually ends up using the um, the, the V1 bridge, the, the token bridge um, to source liquidity. So you know, if you are doing this lock, lock and mint version, users are minting these wrapped assets on a particular chain because there's something they want to do uh, there. Um, you know, you might want to go to the Wanchain L1, for example, and there you want to do some yield farming or some lending with your BTC value. So you have this, you know, existing, um, you know, motivation to go lock your BTC on Bitcoin and then, you know, play with your wrapped asset and generate value for yourself. Um, but just kind of consequently, um, you now have a liquidity pool of BTC on, BT, uh, on Bitcoin. So with all these, you know, hundreds of different assets coming into all these different chains that are resulting in wrapped assets, you just have all these liquidity pools that are sitting there locked securely in these smart contracts. So what Xflows does for, um, you know, a few blue chip assets, this will be like USDT, USDC, BTC, NDTH that we support right now in uh, about a dozen chains. It already has these liquidity pools that are there organically, you know, provided by, by end users and then rebalances them when, when a different user wants to do like um, USDC from Avalanche to um, BNB chain, for example. And this interacts with native Bitcoin or only wrapped wrap versions of Bitcoin? Only native and a few, um, you know, popular synthetics, let's call them. So for Bitcoin, it'll be obviously BTC only exists on, on Bitcoin, but in uh, Binance Smart Chain, you'll have like Binance backed BTC. So we treat those as equivalent. Another one is, um, you know, BTC.B on Avalanche. We treat that as, as native equivalent. Um, so BTC is a special case like that, but with uh, ETH, you know, we'll treat Ethereum, ETH and Ethereum, as well as the various L2s as kind of native equivalent. So you can go to L2 to L2 bridging that way. Um, and then USDT, USDC is a little simpler because Tether and Circle just mint that thing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the when, you, when you're interacting with, you know, cross-chain protocols, you realize, you know, how simplistic it can be when, when you're interacting with, with smart contract platforms, you know, across different chains, but trying to interact with UTXO-based assets or the DAG assets or things that are not smart contracts, you got to be real creative. And that's kind of where Emblem Vault was born is, you know, taking Bitcoin assets, NFTs specifically to different chains. You, ha you have to have this mechanism of trading the private key or go about it in a different way with, and this gets to the, the last component here where it says NFT bridges, right? This was kind of the late comer. I believe the first NFT bridge came around 2020, 2021. Um, I think Emblem may have been first to the scene or around that time. How is OneChain going about moving NFTs across chain? Yeah, so the NFT bridges right now, um, we support just like a handful of collections. Um, the, func the, the, the mechanism itself most closely resembles uh, the token bridges, the lock, mint, burn, and lock. So um, it doesn't burn an NFT, uh, uh, you know, the real NFT and remint it or anything like that in this, um, in a standard mechanism. The user just, um, you know, locks the original NFT on the source chain. Um, it's likely to be an EVM chain in, in, this, in this bridge type. And then um, the bridge mints a mirrored version of it, and it you know copies all the the attributes that the that the NFT has, and it also continue continues to monitor you know the original um, NFT. In some instances, you know some NFTs may have their attributes update um, from time to time, depending on on what it's used for. And so all this you know gets reflected on the destination chain as well. So this mirrored version 
will maintain all of the same attributes as the original one. Um, here, you know, the different collections do have to be uh, integrated, uh, uh, you know, kind of ad hoc before they can be crossed to the bridge. Um, so it's a little more involved than like an ERC20 token or something like that, where it's just uh, a, a copy paste. But yeah, the mechanism is like that. You lock it, you get a wrap version that that inherits all the same attributes. And then when you want to go the other way, the wrap version gets burnt and then you get the original one back. Yeah, that seems to be the the novel approach here. Again, right, the, the whole idea of provenance for an NFT, you'd never want to destroy that unless there's a very specific use case. Mm -hmm. going, going down the front page, you guys have uh, integrated about 30, so I think it's about 35 different platforms right here, all these different networks between Bitcoin, uh, there's some other ones I haven't heard, Moon River, Phantom, Moonbeam, Gather, Essential, et cetera, down the board. How is OneChain going about adopting and integrating these different type of protocols? Is it as simple as, hey, go to your Discord and open up a support ticket, say I want it added, or because you guys are such a heavy R&D company, um, are there multiple degrees um, of variables that need to be satisfied to plug in the OneChain system? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. At this stage of the project, EVM chains are are pretty easy to do. So if you are someone who, you know, even if you're not the EVM chain team itself and you, you want a bridge to a particular EVM, we'll essentially always just, uh, you know, say yes. It, it doesn't take too too much of a lift on our, on our side, um, you know, assuming that it's a standard EVM chain. Um, what we kind of do more internally when we prioritize different um, chains to integrate without the kind of request from the user, it's really to support like the different products. So like Xflows right now, that's definitely our most popular product. And this is really, really powerful for things like, um, you know, the, the, the various Ethereum L2s. So when, as you know, L2s are popping off and there's, you know, new ones, you know, doing well, um, exploding. So these are likely to be EVM chains that we'll just identify on our own and then, um, you know, bridge to them so that the kind of Xflows product itself can continue to expand and get, and get more powerful. Um, Besides that, kind of driven from the R&D side, it's really more the, um, the non-EVMs that we've been looking at. So we most recently bridged to, in terms of non-EVMs, I bridged to Cardano. So we did this kind of hand-in-hand -hand with uh, the, the entities that, that form Cardano. And um, so this is UTXO model. It does have smart contracts, but it's a totally different language. So, you know, this type of stuff um, really aligns with, uh, you know, our vision. Because we don't really want a vision, you know, this... this um, vague meta network that we talked about at the top where everything is seamlessly connected. You know, we don't want that to only be EVMs. That's not the, that's not the vision we, we want. We want lots of different types of networks that maybe can even serve, you know, very specific use cases, but still have that interoperability layer. So we focus a lot on, on bridging to these, um, yeah, to, to these non-EVMs as well. So if you look at that list, there's a, there's a large handful of non-EVMs included there. And then for really, really small chains, um, this is something that um, we've been kind of received more and more requests from lately. You know, when you have a, a, an interconnected system like this, where all the chains are directly connected to one another, like is it, like is in our case, it's not like one of those bridges where um, there's an intermediary chain behind the scenes. You know, that everything is kind of routing through. The connections are are direct. So if there is a risk, you know, that if one of these chains that the system is connected to has some sort of security issue or, you know, anything, any malfeasance on the, on the layer one level, you know, this can, 
impact the whole the whole network um, since it is you know one giant network. So with very very small uh, chains, maybe that only have a small handful of nodes that are running it, we do have kind of a more um, tailored solution that uses our cross-chain message passing platform. Um, and then, so in this case, you know, we can help them. They still, the cross-chain component, they'll still benefit from the security of, you know, that, that secures all of OneChain's products, but the, the project team themselves will own like the smart contracts and things like that. So if anything does go wrong, it's limited to, to, you know, their, their sub -roots. Oh man, there's, there's three different conversations I <laughs> there. Um, between you integrating UTXO models, because that's also one of the main challenges that Emblem faces and and you know tackles. That's really the frontier of innovation and cross cross chain compatibility. Security um, is is another conversation where you know a lot of people um, you know get goosebumps when they hear bridges because they just think of the multi billion dollars of hacks that happened during the last run. Um, and I forgot what the last one was, honestly. Probably so, cross-chain messaging, probably. Oh, cross-chain messaging. Yes. <laughs> Let's start there because that actually seems to be the hot narrative in the cross-chain world. You see like Layer Zero doing a token airdrop. They've blown up and they one of their key metrics is always like cross-chain messaging. I think Wormhole also advertises the same thing as two of those are the leaders in this kind of area. Can you define what cross-chain messaging even means? And then how does Wanchain separate itself from its competitors with its cross-chain messaging uh, protocol? Yeah, you know, that's definitely become a, a hot topic. And I personally really like a lot of what Layer Zero has done, uh, you know, for this side of the industry. Um, you know, to put it really sim simply for people who are, are, are listening and watching, you know, all cross-chain transactions are cross-chain messaging in a way. You know, the message is just a piece of data that you know, in in bridging parlance, we just want to uh, have on one chain and then have slash move it to the destination chain unadulterated, um, so that it's the same quote unquote this quote unquote the same data on both chains. And you know, when we talk about token bridges, you know, that's where we all kind of got started. Um, there's message messages involved there too. It's just like a particular data structure that results in a in a token. So with, um, with cross-chain messaging, it's just a little bit more arbitrary. You can kind of just move any type of data you want, essentially, with a few confines in terms of like the size and things like that. But basically, you can move any type of data you want. And then you just have you know, smart contracts, in most cases, waiting there, looking for that specific type of data. And once it receives that specific type of data, then it triggers an event in the smart contract. Um, so you can leverage it like Layer Zero and Wormhole do to um, you know do token cross-chain transfers if you want. But what's fun about it is that you can really trigger just about any on-chain logic you want um, once you receive the, this uh, this message. Um, so OneChain, you know, our approach to it is like like a lot of our uh, approaches to our products is that we really um, you know always have kind of the long-term industry standards in mind. Now, as you said at the top, you know, we're, we're far away from having true industry standards, but that is where we want to get to um, ultimately. So, um, you know, Wan Chain CTO, um, he's the head of interoperability at the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. So we work a lot in kind of that industry group where there's a lot of peer review that goes on in terms of designing, um, you know, not only cross-chain messaging, but crossing messaging as well. Um, and so we try to make sure that a our, our products will align with these standards that are being developed. Luckily, we're involved in informing them. So you know, as things change, where we can all adjust pretty quickly. 
Um, but what it kind of ends up being is that, um, you know, all these designs, we want to limit the number of components involved. So there's security and simplicity. And so that's kind of how we differentiate a lot of these other layer zeros, you know, relatively simple. It's quite, I quite like them also. Um, but these other ones, you know, sometimes it's really quite convoluted what they're trying to pull off very complex stuff. And that in itself, um, you know, poses some security risks because any one of those components, you know, can have an issue. And so our approach is very, very simple, uh, for cross chain messaging. Um, what we end up doing is that when chain itself, um, we just deploy a single smart contract on, um, the chains that we support and this, we just call it a message gateway. So it basically is like, um, a slingshot in a way. Um, and the rest of it, it uses the same, uh, you know, bridge node group that our token bridges use. And then, um, the, the projects that use, um, this, this cross chain messaging protocol, they themselves will deploy smart contracts on the source and destination chain. And we just teach them how to trigger these, these gateways. So when they, you know, build whatever message they want in their smart contract, they send it to the gateway with, you know, some information like, where do you want to send it to, to what chain, et cetera, et cetera. And then the gateway receives it. It goes through our, our bridge node group, the same one that does the, the, the token bridging, hands it over to the gateway on the destination chain, and it just flings it again, kind of on unadulterated to um, the receiving smart contract that is owned by the project team. And then it triggers the on-chain logic based on you know the inputs. Um, that made it sound extremely boring, but I'm telling you, it's cool stuff. <laughs> how, how do the nodes, um, how are they rewarded? How do they get rewarded for running nodes? How does that work? Yeah, so uh, we do have a, a coin called the WAN coin. It's both um, uh, the, the coin of the WAN chain L1 blockchain, as well as serves to reward the, the bridge node groups. Um, so yeah, when they, every month, the group of nodes gets reelected and they're just earning a WAN coin basically for performing their duties. Um, they themselves have to stake a fair amount of, of WAN coin as well um, to be able to become a, um, a WAN bridge node. And this somewhat serves as kind of an additional security layer. So there's slashing mechanisms and things like that if if there were to be any type of malfeasance or anything like that. But yeah, to answer you directly, the the um, the benefit for them comes from the WAN coin. And then um, very, very soon, we will be um, rolling out our, our new bridge fee structure. And so these nodes will also um, you know benefit from the fees. One question along, you were talking, and I might have missed it. I had a huge explosion in my neighborhood. <laughs> I got kicked off the network for a minute. Um, but you were talking about, you know, pools and transferring of, of value between chains based on like a pool mechanism, which got me thinking about like ThorChain. Is it similar to the mechanism that, that ThorChain uses mm -hmm. for their kind of system or is it is it quite different mm -hmm. from that? Yeah. Uh, first, I love Thor, so I'll throw that out there. But it is very, very different. So um, uh, with with Thor Chain, you know, they will basically actually be doing swaps most of the time. Um, and so when you're doing extremely large transactions, um, you know, you will experience slippage. Um, they go through like an intermediary chain and do swaps in most cases. Um, and you can, um, you know, limit the slippage by, you know, basically, I forget what they what they call this function, but where you basically DCA it, you know, you set it out to like complete over the course of a whole day. So there's less uh, price impact because there's actual swapping, like classic deck style LP swapping going on with ours. It's not like that. These are all single asset pools and the, the bridge nodes, you know, as a user, let's say puts a thousand USDT in on Ethereum, it'll just release a thousand USDT 
on Avalanche. So there's not any swapping or, or kind of manipulation of the assets going on. It's just in on one pool and out on the other pool. So there's no like slippage. Slippage is not a concept in this or anything like that. That's nice. Slippage is what uh, dampens all traders. Uh, <laughs> right? yes. All meme coin traders, they lose all their money trying to trade Pepe and realize they lose a lot of that value through the slippage. God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. So just kind of putting it into perspective in layman term, right? So the way that OneChain works is you essentially, you go to these smart, different smart contract platforms, you deploy smart contract. This is essentially the terminal for how you interact with all these different chains. So if someone wants to use OneChain, let's say on on optimism and you guys are deployed there you just they're just essentially interacting with the smart contract that you guys have de deployed which has all the logic and functionality with the entire on-chain ecosystem do i have that right to a degree yeah to a degree to a degree for our kind of uh, in-house products it's like that so like the bridge.onechain.org it's like that you know the front end all you're doing is interacting with the smart contract that we have deployed um, on the various networks that we support with the cross-chain messaging a little bit different because you know the smart contracts that contain the actual logic are not deployed by us. So for example, you mentioned earlier that you've deployed on Cardano, which is a UTXO based platform, although I do think it has smart contracts. How yeah, do you go, how does the team go about trying to deploy on some of these chains that do not have smart contracts, things like Bitcoin and Litecoin and Dogecoin? I know you don't, I don't think any bridges, quote unquote bridges have actually done this yet. Um, Emblem does it for NFTs, but we do it with trading private keys. But to have more complex logic, right? You can't deploy a smart contract unless you're going to the L2s that do right. have it. Um, at least at the the current R&D level that you guys are at now, what what is the approach to something like that? Yeah. So if it's a true, um, you know, no smart contract platforms, like you mentioned, Cardano actually has like uh, smart contracts, so so it doesn't apply in this case. But um, for Bitcoin, Litecoin. Um, we also support Dogecoin. Basically, um, it, it, the way it is right now, it's just not uh, feature full. So basically, you can take the BTC out of Bitcoin and bring it to another chain, but there's no um, there's no situation where you're taking uh, ETH from Ethereum and putting it on Bitcoin. So we simply just don't don't support that function um, on the smart contract um, chains. This bridge node group you know, is, is triggering these smart contracts to lock and do all this type of stuff. Um, on the non-smart contract chains, the cryptography is similar, but obviously there's no smart contract. So really they are basically co-managing a lock account. So they have, um, you know, all the BTC is getting locked on on a, on a address in Bitcoin. And then this private key that, you know, can control this wallet is, um, shared so to speak by the the bridge node group it's not it's not a multi-sig we use multi-party computation so um the private key is like sharded and then reassembled um by the bridge node group but yeah so the the it's just that we don't support you know things that are uh that are impossible <laughs> give me give me an idea because this is all like kind of techie talk give me an idea of like besides you know taking btc to avalanche or something like that give me Give me like a use case that, you know, just an average dude in the audience would understand like, oh, that like cross-chain messaging, we hear that, but it's like, well, what is that good for? Give me like some use use cases you've seen, which are, you know, kind of interesting and people can start thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I'll answer that quite uh, deeply. So cut me off if I start talking too long, but, but I will say you, you brought up like a, a really important point that, that, you know, 
I think about a lot is that the actual use cases for this, um, you know, we still need them to to come. Right now, like DeFi is pretty cool. That was great for the for smart contracts and and it feels like in some ways we we've hit a rut. You know, we're still waiting for the next true killer app uh, for for blockchain in in its current state. Um, you know, people like us at OneChain, we think interoperability is going to be a key to unlocking that. But the actual use cases right now are kind of um, variations on a theme, whether you're using cross-chain messaging or not. You know, if you look at the implementation, a lot of it is going to be still, you know, value transfers, token transfers, just, you know, built with a cross-chain messaging platform. Um, and then there's like some some variety based on that. You know, some things that exist now that um, people are playing with is, you know, cross-chain lending. Um, where you know you can lock your your collateral on one chain, and then you know send the confirmation of that lock, you know proof of that lock to another chain, and then you can borrow an asset on a different chain. Um, cool, but it's also you know not quite. It doesn't fill you with you know this feeling that we're going to change the world. Uh, you know, based well, like when DeFi first kind of popped off, and it seemed like anything was possible. Um, but you know what we're hoping to see is kind of really more, um, you know mature real world type of uh, implementations and, and use cases. So one example that I like to point back to, uh, because, you know, when blockchain was really starting to take off, everyone was going on and on about how um, supply chains are just like this perfect fit for, for blockchain. And blockchain is totally, like, every supply chain in the world is going to run on a blockchain in like two years. And then we fast forward eight, eight years and you know, no, no supply chain is being run on, on, on blockchain. Really, a couple, a couple wineries are tracking things, and that's and that's about it. Um, and you know, I think part of that is because of this like lack of interoperability. So as we build out this infrastructure, you know, what we hope to see is like if we take this supply chain example, is that you can have a kind of multi-chain, multiple-chain system. So you could have just for example um, a first blockchain. This can be your supply blockchain, and this could even be permissioned. Um, it's only kind of industry players who are specifically relevant to this supply chain that have access to this blockchain. And all the info related to the supply chain is recorded on this chain. Okay, that's number one. Then you have a second chain. Okay, if you're in the real world, um, some people might not like this, but you know, you'll have to deal with the government. Now, no kind of company in their right mind is just gonna be like, oh, here, take all of my data and, and give it to the government. This is why the one blockchain system kind of never took off, I think, for a supply chain. So you can have a regulatory blockchain. And now here, you have the same supply. Uh, it's still permissioned, but you have the, the supply chain players who have access to it, as well as the government. Now, the, the supply chain companies, they only want to provide you know, the minimum amount of data that they have to in order to be compliant. Um, so this, this uh, second blockchain, the regulatory blockchain, will only have that information. It's like a subset of the information that's on the first chain. And then you could have like a third chain, which is for consumers. You know, some consumers want to know the provenance of their assets, for example. And so that's even kind of more narrow. And this one could be totally public because there's nothing, there's nothing private here. You know, everyone can see, it doesn't matter. And once you have this infrastructure, this interoperable infrastructure, okay, then in a, you know, proven, secure, decentralized way, that first supply chain blockchain can record data the, the right data, the only the required data to the various chains. And now you have like a pretty mature multi-chain system where you could actually see it being used in the real world, but without the kind of that interoperability layer, you know, we're, we're probably limited still now to kind of deck swaps and, uh, 
and maybe like a pretty cool DCA tool or something like that, but still very much like stuck in the realm of you know, trading digital assets. Yeah, I wonder it, it just you, you saying those sort of things reminds me of just like how siloed and we still are, you know, people just one, I mean, especially talking about ordinals, and we've been very involved in the ordinals kind of explosion and just, you know, this mindset of like, no, everything's going to happen on Bitcoin, right? Or, or everything's yeah. going to happen <laughs> on Solana, right? And it's just, we're still very much locked into that. I don't know if it's just human nature to get kind of siloed, or just like, our lazy nature. I don't want to get an extra wallet. I don't want to have to figure out more stuff. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, the wallets are a problem for sure. You know, once you leave an EVM, it's, it's like, you got to learn a whole new thing <laughs> and it's, okay. it's kind of a hot mess. Even learning one, you know, for your regular, a non blockchain user is, is already a big ask. And now you have to learn multiple, but yeah, you know, like this, this idea of using one blockchain only, I, this was a while ago, so I might have the numbers, um, slightly wrong. So, so don't, don't quote me directly, but, you know, at least someone like me, I think a lot of people on this call, you know, we do want to see a world that, you know, large swaths of the world are are leveraging blockchain and are building on blockchain um, in some capacity. Um, and, you know, there is this decentralization ethos in blockchain, but there's also this kind of empowerment ethos um, that, you know, was there from the start. And, you know, there's 8 billion people uh, on earth and, you know, in 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 a day, it was what like eighty six thousand plus um, uh, seconds. But if we wanted to give like each just, I just, yeah, if we want to give like each person on Earth even one transaction a day, you need like ninety thousand plus TPS. So like, no one chain is going to be servicing that. So interoperability, if we really want kind of true mainstream adoption, you know, we need multiple chains involved. And and so interoperability is just a must. You have concerns about security, sure. And they're valid, but these are just things that need to be solved. You know, the answer can't be, well, we just won't have interoperability because then it's just this whole blockchain thing is not going to go anywhere. You know, that's that 90,000 plus TPS, you know, that's one transaction per day per person. Now I do like hundreds of transactions, you know, needless, valueless transactions a day. Sometimes, you know, we need even one a day is not enough. So just the scale of this thing, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really immense. Um, so yeah interoperability just has to be part of the part of the core infra yeah and i think it's um well it's just a reminder of of how much needs to be built right because it does have to you know we talk about this like uh, invisible layer and it's so far from invisible right now it's like you just bump up to it mm -hmm. and it takes you know devs and teams you know weeks months years to build out stuff just to get stuff to work you know so your average person right who just wants to use the internet and just wants to use web three and just wants it to all work. Like, it just feels like, you know, this sort of conversation reminds me, Holy cow, man, this might be still another 20 years away. Right. It's just, it has that like early, early and much, it's like, it's a better version of web two, but it feels like it's a much harder version to build than mm -hmm. web two. it's kind of the general general yeah. to get it, to get it where it's, you know, drop dead easy and I can use it easy on my phone. It just feels like we got a lot of, lot, a lot of work to do. Yeah. I thought maybe this cycle was going to be different, but then on um, literally the first day of 2024, there was a huge uh, bridge hack and then yeah. uh, <laughs> ordinals took off. And then my Twitter feed was uh, covered with memes again. And I was like, okay, I'm, I know what we're in for this time. <laughs> it's going to be more of the same. So one chain and an emblem came around the same time, at least the idea in 2016, and have seen the entire 
you know, history of interoperability happened on chain. I believe the first atomic swap was in 2017. The first bridge hit mainnet around 2018, 2019. And so now we've discussed, you know, up until this point, you and Adam are going back and forth of, of um, you know, how early it still is. Tam, what do you think are the main challenges um, that, that for why we haven't seen adoption, native adoption in the crypto industry? I mean, yes, you know, there's, maybe, you know, 10 to 20 billion total TVL across all of the interoperability protocols, right? But that's like half of the market cap of Dogecoin itself, right? It's like nothing comparative to, you know, $1.5 trillion industry. What, what is the, in your opinion, through the R&D of OneChain, what is the number one hurdle that's preventing, uh, I guess, crypto or mainstream adoption in the crypto industry itself? Yeah, well, definitely I think the number one the number one missing thing that that is stopping mainstream adoption is the interoperability side. You know, it, it And it, and what in the interoperability sector is the the largest challenge right now? Yeah, uh, so the lack of industry standards. Um I think this is really what is needed. Right now, you know, we can do a lot of stuff as we we've, we've been talking about uh off the top, but almost everything is still built ad hoc. So yeah, we can move anything you want, you know, from one chain, just about from any chain to any chain, but it has to be a custom built solution. And, you know, that's no way to, to scale. <laughs> and that's no way to have this seamless, uh, interoperable network. Um, you need something that is more like, like, imagine you're, you're, we go back a few years and the first DEX is coming out on Ethereum. Now you could have a DEX and you could, if there's no ERC-20 standard that everyone is, you know, following, sure, you could still, you know, integrate one by one all the different tokens that you want to be tradable on your DEX, but it's absolute insanity to try to build out, you know, functional DEX that way. But then you have a standard that everyone is following, like ERC-20. Okay, now you can just build your DEX to recognize that standard. And now all of a sudden, it's this beautiful permissionless system. Anyone just puts any kind of a contract address they want, and you can just trade on the DEX. You know, we don't have anything like that in um the cross-chain sector it's what we need I'll, basically every kind of project is talking about this everyone likes to talk about the tcp ip of the web3 world but um you know it's 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 a far away from that part of it i think is there is a lot of mistrust um in the industry you know it wouldn't there's not that much so so to speak that would have to be done let's say to start properly building and uh, implementing various standards. But once you start using um, the same standard, you kind of open yourself up a little bit to, um, you know, risks from the other people that are using that standard. So right now, you know, retail users, they see all these bridges getting hacked and, you know, they're rightfully scared. You know, part of that exists in the builders as well. You know, like, oh, well, we can't use, you know, we can't be minting the same wrapped asset and sharing a smart contract with multi-chain because if multi-chain goes down, you know, it's going to take us down with them. Um, so there's this kind of element. It's totally off chain, but is definitely kind of slowing down a lot of the, the progress. Um, but on the kind of more optimistic side of things, well, I think it's, I think it's uh, optimistic. I think some people will disagree because there's centralized uh, entities involved, but you know, some like a company like circle is doing some cool stuff on the interoperability front. You know, they have USDC themselves and they have their in-house cross-chain protocol called CCTP. Um, 
And this, you know, basically does, it's basically like a cross-chain messaging bridge that burns and mints um, rather than locks and mints. And because they're a circle and they own the USDC contracts, you know, you're, you're actually minting the real USDC on the various chains. And, you know, I think we need these huge players. You know, you talked about what, what I forget what number you said, but like 20 billion uh, across all the interoperability protocols and like that, but like, okay, that's similar to just circle alone, you know, for the USDC. So they can just come in and, and, you know, I'm hoping to see more kind of active participation from more of these big industry players that, you know, throwing their hat into the interoperability ring as well, because yes, we don't want to just copy paste CCTP and put it on everything because there is these centralized components, but there is a lot to learn from it. And having just kind of the drive of these huge players, you know, I think this is going to be the path forward to being able to actually eventually have an industry standard. So to get, to get a standard, you're talking about kind of, there's two different ways at least that I'm thinking about this. You mentioned the very beginning that you're on the Ethereum foundation representing, you know, creating an industry standard for interoperability for Ethereum foundation. Um, whereas, you know, you talk, you just discussed circle, which is, you know, free market capitalism, them coming in, creating their own standard and getting market adoption. So do you think it's as simple as taking, you know, this kind of, I guess you'd say like organizational standard adoption through heavy research and development, or is it more likely that um, a, a private entity comes in and just basically dominates the market and then just gets adoption through product market fit? Well, I hope it's not the second. Um, you know, I think what we want is a standard and not a product um, to power this interoperability. So if you do something like um, like, like uh, Chainlink CCIP, like this is a product, um, they have, you know, a lot of power and, and, and that's great. <laughs> but, you know, I think ultimately what we want is that the actual infrastructure itself, this bridging, you know, it should almost be like, like a zero profit condition thing. It's the core infrastructure itself, maximize security. Here's where the standards exist. And, you know, no one's really making money. No one's losing money because it has to continue to exist sustainably, but really kind of like a zero profit condition. Anyone can go in, easy to come in, easy to come out, and you have this infrastructure. Then on top of that, just because you, you know, you obviously want to prioritize security if you're talking about core infrastructure, it doesn't mean that you can't build products on top of that that are profit generating, that are, you know, maybe improving the experience. Um, you have the security layer, but for example, maybe because it's um, because it's uh, so secure, maybe it's a little slower than you know some use cases might need. Okay, this is a perfect opportunity for a product here. The, that company or that product is going to assume some of the risk, help you complete this transaction quicker for a fee. Then, if anything goes wrong in the underlying thing, it's assumed by you know that that product. No, I think this is kind of how we want to build it out. But that core core layer, that base base layer, can't be a product. It has to really be core infrastructure. <laughs> You know, the way that the industry's morphed over the last 15 years, though, unfortunately, I find it hard that it's going to be this organizational standard that gets implemented because the way crypto works, it's such a free market and all the activity happens on chain and also in a, you know, pseudonymous or completely anonymous manner. Uh, it's a different type of paradigm that's getting a bunch of these ideas or, or protocols to get adoption, right? The, the degree of coordination required to get to reach social consensus across, you know, 30 to 50 main blockchains is, is tough. It, it would take a real 
strong leader to really enact this, right? You would need like mm-hmm. Vitalik to really take charge in this um, and maybe a handful of other key leaders to see that happen. Um, but at the end of the day, right, even Vitalik can be overthrown by somebody like BlackRock coming in saying, hey, this is my interoperability protocol and we're just going to take it to market and just pretty much dominate everybody. But it's an interesting thing to think about mm-hmm. um, over time because there's, you know, three... I guess three different ways to move assets across blockchains, but that's just assets. As you message with the messaging protocol, it could be any type of of data, right? So there's so many degrees to it, and it's not even completely understood by everybody mm-hmm. to see where we actually might go. Yeah, um, but I think it'd be it'd be a, it'd be a shame if it, if where we landed was just BlackRock coming in, like you said, and saying this is now how we do. And they have Onyx too, right? They've already put their foot into the game, and yeah. basically in their in their own centralized way, they're they're already in the market. Yeah, they 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 seem better suited for being kind of that product layer, like built on top of it. Um, you know, there's there's it, obviously when you do things in a decentralized way like this, you know, one of the trade offs is that it can be quite slow and difficult to coordinate. Um, but you know, there's still. Um, you know, it's still happening in the background. It's not like we're at a complete standstill and there's not pro- any progress being made. There's even like um, EIPs focused directly on this, you know, being reviewed. You know, this would kind of be more that kind of grassroots approach to try to get like a standard. And yeah, it's not going to be, you know, immediately 50 chains. But if you, um, you know, get Ethereum, for example, to, to formalize an EIP um, that's based on, you know, a cross-chain messaging interface, you know, then, you know, that has the potential to, radiate outwards you know you're probably going to get the l2s at that point then you're going to get the side chains and now you have like a pretty big cluster and then you know even besides from that you know i guess maybe we're showing our, our colors a little bit but there are other um you know this of this type of like grassroots approach to it like you have cosmos with ibc who are building out their own kind of little sector uh same thing with polka dot who have kind of in-house solution between the the pair chains and and the and the relay chain um, so, you know, there's, st- there's stuff happening, but just the fact that we can name off like now four different ongoing approaches to industry standards kind of shows that it's still going to be a while until we have, um, until we have one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. It's like, you could have, um, whatever Ethereum lead, but what are the odds that, you know, Solana is going to accept it. Right. I mean, it just seems, it seems like the power existing power structures kind of between blockchains are so strong you know, this, this kind of silo effect, mm-hmm. it, it almost, it almost feels like, it almost feels like an impossibility to me. Um, but I, you're, you're probably more on the ground. So you don't get that feel, you get that feel that, that there actually is the potential there for, for coordination. I think that's, this is why I personally am encouraged by someone like circle coming in and really putting, you know, their muscle behind, an approach to interoperability. You know, they're the type of project that is a major player in all these different ecosystems that we talked about. You know, they could be some an example of an entity that might have influence in both a Solana and an Ethereum, for example. And definitely not just take CCTP as it exists now, but it is just a cross-chain messaging implementation. So there are kind of things that can be learned there. You know, the centralized component there, it's permissionless, but the centralized component is that there's like a circle side attestation. So it's kind of like two, um, two steps. The first step is anyone can trigger the cross-chain transaction, the burn and lock, and then that verification, this is centralized. But um, it's at least a starting point. 
um, to kind of think about how how to to um, you know make these totally siloed um, communities and networks interoperable. I would I would stop short of saying it's impossible, but it's a huge task for sure. But I guess the way I I kind of interpret it is that it's a necessity. Um, if if this problem does not get solved, there's not going to be a true widespread adoption. We were just that we were having this conversation with one of our friends in the ordinal space. He thinks the future of crypto is actually just complete native experiences with no interoperability. Whereas we think the opposite. And so like the the reference or kind of the example I gave him is so you think crypto is just going to be these like siloed games, right? Just like how video games are now. They're siloed into their own consoles. You can't take them anywhere else. And he said, yeah, I don't think there's going to be pretty much interoperability across the board. So we're both here on the same adventure um, <laughs> that we believe, you know, is a complete necessity. One kind of framework I like to, to use um, that relates to the real world is blockchains or I see blockchains as countries, right? And then you see dApps and L2s as kind of the cities and towns that exist in these countries. And then the, the three different types of interoperability protocols are the ways to move the assets, whether it's, you know, a shipping container or, you know, a plane or however you move these different types of assets in the real world, transportation. And the international shipping industry is, I think, 5 to 10% of the global GDP, right? So if you're taking the global GDP that's in the, you know, 50 to $100 trillion, you know, even 1% of that is a $1 trillion industry, which makes it just so immensely large that it's it's a huge necessity. I think it'll be much larger. That actually, it'd be ten trillion because if it was ten percent. Uh, but as we wrap up here, uh, like, what are some things for us to look forward to for Wanchain? Like, what is the what is the focus right now in the purview of saying, hey, we need to get this done? And these are some of the innovation, innovative products or ideas that we're going to bring to market soon. Sure. Yeah. So um, in 2024. Definitely, we are going to continue to roll out our cross-chain message passing protocol um, and expand it to non-EVMs as well. So for example, um, we're going to roll it out to uh, Cardano. So this is going to be a big differentiator for Wenchin because we do have this pre-existing focus on non-EVMs. So we're going to continue to roll out our, our products there. Um, other ones in the pipeline you know, include like Solana and things like that. So providing this type of um, interoperable layer. and. This maybe I'll speak more directly to the Wenchin community now. One thing you know that they have been um, you know anticipating is kind of a better unification of the various components that form Wenchin, the the multiple cross chain products, the L1, and kind of make this more of a unified system in itself. So um, that's a big focus for 2024. First, first and foremost, it's going to happen via um, you know the 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 the, um, the launch of our bridge fees so all these fees will be you know converted to to wancoin to be able to provide value for the ecosystem and reinvest it into the ecosystem so that'll be kind of um, something that our our existing community will look forward to and then besides that definitely you're going to see um, xflows expansion continue to take off this you know we're at all-time highs right now for uh you know for one chain standards mostly driven by um by xflows so we have a lot of more more L2s and sidechains um, kind of in the pipeline to expand this, this product. And then the rest of that is probably going to be behind the scenes. You know, we're going to keep hammering away um, with our, our industry partners as well as the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance to kind of just keep, um, keep going after this industry standard and try to make just a few steps forward in 2024. That's exciting. One final question about the fee model. We have this conversation in the Emblem team chat a lot about 
different business models for interoperability protocols and how it's quite limited at the moment. Uh, what what is the fee the fee model? Is it you're charging for bridging and uh, bridging both ways in a percentage like a 0.3 percent or something like that, or is it a different model? Um, so the fees are built are are split into two. So we have a network fee. Uh, we'll have a network fee and a service fee. So network fee, this is dynamic and will just cover the kind of incurred on-chain cost. Um, you know, because the the user only signs the transaction on one chain. So on the on the destination chain that'll get kind of reimbursed. And then um, the service fee, service fee is, yeah, is a small percentage of the cross-chain uh, cross uh, volume. Um, it's, it's smaller than 0.3%. I won't say the number right now, just in case we change it right before okay. launch, but it's but it's very, very small. Our goal is still to be the, the cheapest um, um, cross-chain protocol uh, so that we can maintain volume via kind of the aggregators and things like that. And um, and then when when coin holders themselves will will be able to uh, benefit from like a discount on that based on how much WAN they have. Love it, bringing the tokenomics on top of the traditional fee model. Yeah, uh, the uh, product layer. Yeah, right. Product layer. <laughs> I guess that's the that's what we should title this, right? Uh, is it going to be the protocol or the products that win in the interoperability wars that are coming over the next you know probably two <laughs> decades until it really gets figured out? Uh, dude, really appreciate this conversation. It's uh, very educational and enlightening uh, to also just talk to somebody that's in the industry that actually you know it m to a much deeper level than than I do as well. But up and down, you've seen seen it all. So really appreciate your time, man. No, thanks a lot for having me. I had a blast. I love talking about this stuff. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I can feel it. For those <laughs> that don't know, Adam, myself, and Chris, we host this show Tuesday through Thursday at 1130 a.m. Eastern time. Please make sure that you follow Tam. Make sure that you follow Emblem Vault and everyone on stage so that you can get the most up-to-date information about crypto interoperability. Tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, we'll be back with the founder of Atomicals talking about how they are building an AVM, Atomicals Virtual Machine, on Bitcoin Layer 1. I'm really excited for that. Uh, and until then, guys, we will see you uh, tomorrow morning. Make sure that you stay safe, and we'll see you soon.